Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, we've got Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Third, we've got Tarun, the Gigabrain and Grand Poobot Gauntlet. He is going to be showing up in a second. And then myself, I'm Haseeb, I'm head hype man at Dragonfly. So the four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. So it's been uh, a little bit of a slow week in crypto land or slow couple of weeks, I would say. It seems like most of the news this week has been around hacks and things breaking, which yeah. is uh, only the biggest hack of all time. But other than that, it's been pretty, pretty chill. That's true. That's true. It, it, it's funny how just the passage of a few days makes things seem really whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like years ago in crypto speed. Exactly. Exactly. I no longer even feel it. Like the, the, the night that I saw that the, the Ronin hack took place, I was just like, oh my God, like this is, this is, this is, this is the, the worst nightmare for anybody in the crypto industry. And then two days later, I was like, oh, never mind. No one cares. Well, that's because you didn't have any of your own funds in the uh, Ronin bridge. That is true. That is true. Uh, very much by choice. I uh, did not get my funds in the Ronin Bridge. Well, so, okay, let's, let's maybe just go through the news for those who are not aware. What was this? This was March 29th. This is a little bit over a week ago, as of the time we're recording this, that uh, the Ronin Bridge was hacked for a little bit over $600 million worth of Ether and stablecoins. So um, the TLDR on how this thing got hacked is that basically... So the Ronin multi the, the Ronin bridge was secured by a multisig that nominally had nine addresses in the multisig. However, four of those addresses were controlled by accounts owned by the Axie Infinity team or the Sky Mavis team, which is the developer of Axie Infinity. And so what ended up happening was that uh, reading between the lines, there was some kind of social engineering attack on uh, some of the members who controlled who had access to the multisig at Axie Infinity, and there was also a bug from a previous program that Sky Mavis was running that gave them access to another one of the multi-sig account holders. So basically it was effectively five of nine controlled by one party. Uh, and so when that compromise took place, they were able to sign any, basically able to forge a signature or not really even forge, just actually write a, you know, create a signature that uh, allowed them to say, yep, this is a valid withdrawal. Go ahead and send this money over the bridge. And so using this, the attacker was able to move an enormous amount of Ether and USDC. And also, supposedly, this hack took place six days before the bridge was actually shut down. And although users noticed that, like, hey, guys, there's, like, something weird going on. What are these big, giant withdrawals? The team was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. We're looking into it. It's no big deal. And then later, it was kind of effectively all but confirmed that, like, yes, this was a massive compromise. The ether was missing, and they needed to shut down the bridge and somehow remunerate the, uh, the victims. So... The, uh, the Axie Infinity team has pledged that they are going to remunerate the victims. There was actually a big update to the game that was supposed to uh, go live recently, and that's gotten pushed back now because, you know, everyone's, everyone's been hacked. So 
it's a it's a it's a really it's a bad it's a bad look for Axie Infinity. They they cleaned up the multisig. They're now you know we have they have more decentral actually decentralized parties on the multisig at this point, but it it doesn't look good. So yeah, Tom Robert perspectives on the largest hack in on-chain history. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned it, and I, I think it's very funny that normally something happens, and I feel like within the hour, all of crypto Twitter is talking about it, but this took place on the 23rd, and the news kind of broke on the 29th, and um, Crypto Cobain, Kobe on, on Twitter, noticed this and, and said that he took out an AXS short, but in, in the time between, you know, when he took out the short and when it was noticed and made popular on, on, on crypto Twitter, AXS actually went up a lot. And so he was liquidated on the short when we tried to sort of you know, trade on the news. So markets aren't always you know, super efficient in, in crypto, unfortunately. I was disappointed by this hack. You know, cross-chain bridges are extremely complicated. This has been the basis of a lot of the different hacks and vulnerabilities of the last year. You know, my expectation is that, you know, as more L1s besides Ethereum become popular and more bridges exist between Ethereum and other blockchains, that the bridges are going to be the most likely place where funds get lost, um, simply because they oftentimes deal with more complex systems than a simple smart contract. So it took people a couple of years to get good, and putting that in air quotes is never good, but skilled at hacking solidity. It was a relatively simple surface area for people to learn how to write Solidity safely, a bunch of auditors, you know, learned how to, you know, check for the most common patterns of, you know, risk. And over time, we started seeing like basic Solidity attacks go down. Multi-chain bridges are significantly more complex systems that use multiple different platforms, multiple different languages, uh, multiple different security parameters. They blend things from centralized to decentralized. You know, we've seen some of the biggest attacks and hacks here, I think it's going to continue to be the number one weak point for crypto ecosystems. And if you're a user, I think you want to be especially cautious about cross-chain bridges until they've really stood the test of time and, you know, have an extreme lindy effect. Well, so you, you say that, you know, bridges, bridges keep getting hacked and bridging is extremely hard. That's generally true, although this was not a, okay, there's an enormous complexity of bridging and that's why they got hacked. They got hacked for the most mundane possible reason in crypto, which is that they clicked on some dumb link, they got compromised, and the, multi, the quote-unquote multi-sig was actually basically a one-of-one. One. And this is like the most basic kind of attack in crypto for which there, I, to my mind, there's no excuse. So I, I would not put this in the same category as the wormhole hack or the, uh, the what's it called, multi-chain, what used to be poly network. This was the most basic failure of OPSEC that you could possibly have in crypto. And, and also it was just handled in an incredibly amateurish way of like deny, deny, deny. And then six days later, okay, fine. Yes, we got hacked for an enormous and massive amount of money. Well, I'll posit how many users you included, me included before this hack knew, you know, the structure by which the funds in the bridge were secured. I, I, I didn't know, but I, I'm not an Axie player. So I, 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 had, I, had, I had no interest in knowing. Right. I mean, how many people do you think even asked, right? Yes. No, granted, granted. But I think there's a view in crypto that it's the responsibility of the user to diligence all the software that they use and blah, 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 right? This is for, forever. This has kind of been the, the core story about, okay, you know, trust don't ver or, uh, verify, don't trust. You know, everything is open source, everything, uh, not everything, but most things are open source. 
So you should be able to figure this out yourself, read the smart contracts, blah, blah, blah. Now, in reality, especially in the world as crypto is going mainstream, this is a pipe dream, right? There's no way that we can expect normal users, especially the users of something like Axie Infinity, to go in and read the bridge contract and understand what the hell it's doing. And of course, even if you read the bridge contract, you don't know who the signers are on the multisigs. They're just a bunch of addresses, right? So you don't, you don't know that they're all controlled by one party. So it is the responsibility of Sky Mavis to figure this shit out. And like, look, if you are using... If, if you are using a multisig for a bridge, okay, fine. I understand bridges are hard. Maybe a multisig is a good enough stopgap in the interim, right? Like even right now, you know, look at Stargate. Stargate is right now signing all their all their oracles, oracle reads with, with just a multisig. Getting the full decentralized Nirvana vision of how to build, you know, cross-chain bridging is awesome. I'm all for it, but it's going to take a while, and I get that. This was this was a very very basic failure that I think there there is really no good excuse for, and it falls in the same category of like people who get their apes hacked. You know, like that was the level of incompetence that Sky Mavis exhibited in this hack. So I, I think they deserve the the opprobrium that they're getting right now. It, it just ends up making the industry look really bad. Right? If this was some mastermind type thing, you know, like I think the, uh, the the wormhole hack is a good example of. Look, this was an incredibly complex hack, and it, it was hard. It was hard to catch. Right? It was a uh, it was it was a genuine edge case. They <laughs> this is like the main thing that happens is like, look, if you if you control. Uh, access to a multisig that has billions of dollars in it. Don't click random links and make sure that all the multisig holders are different people. That is your main job if you're managing huge amounts of money. Yeah, I, I think in this case, though, to be a little bit more nuanced, it's probably not you know a multisig with people holding private keys and signing them directly. I assume it was all server-based where they had, let's say, four different computers with identical code, each independently signing messages. You know, it probably was less about humans and more about keys on identical servers being compromised because humans were silly, right? And made mistakes. Yeah, I think they mentioned that like they left like a whitelisting function in to like call directly into like one of their nodes, probably one of the signing nodes. So it's like, yeah, you, you don't want to do that. I, um, I do also wonder like sort of the implications for maybe the market more, more broadly. I think we've, you know, there's sort of a L2 versus L1 like bearable thesis where it's like, you know, L2s are supposed to be this nirvana of super cheap transactions and, you know, everything just sort of happens within the same ecosystem. And that's kind of been, I think, foiled by the growth of these other chains and really, you know, cheap, fast bridges. And it's like, well, why am I going to use optimism when I can just bridge, you know, Avalanche and it's way, way cheaper and, you know, faster and like the bridge is sufficiently good. So I don't have to worry about, you know, sort of network security or whatever. It's like, it's, it's fine. Well, sometimes it's not fine. And so I, I wonder if this is going to like embolden people who are now you know, maybe looking more to like build on an L2 instead of building on one of these you know, cheaper, faster up and coming L1s. Because maybe that assumption that, hey, the bridge is going to be secure and fine is like not necessarily there. I agree. Maybe Ronin is not really emblematic of broader bridge building security. But I mean, Wormhole also was, you know, a massive hack and uh, yeah, that's straight, straight smart contract issue. Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, I think this may be the first, it may be the beginning of us starting to people starting to really feel like, hey, multi-sigs aren't that secure. We, we've kind of gotten used to this idea that like, hey, multi-sigs are just kind of a fine stopgap and there's no real difference between a multi-sig and you know, some kind of full you know, decentralized security solution. Because of course, centralized security solutions can also get hacked. And you, know, you, you mentioned Layer 2, of course, there was very famously the, the $2 million bug bounty that was paid for, uh, that Optimism paid out, uh, what's, what's the name, Soric? Yeah. Discovering a vulnerability that allowed unlimited minting of Ether, which could, you could use to drain all of Optimism. Right. So the reality is that all this stuff is friggin' hard. 
all this stuff has massive surface area for bugs and and uh, uh, the one thing I think the reason why people default to multisigs is that at least it's a it's a it's a security model and surface area that we know and has been very battle tested, right? No one's worried about Gnosis safes getting compromised. Then the, the, the compromise just moves a layer up to like, can you actually manage that Gnosis safe in your own, you know, security surface area effectively? And here, I, actually, it's one of the reasons why I like the Avalanche Bridge, because the Avalanche Bridge, they basically use Intel SGX to ensure that the bridge operators are actually, uh, you know, running according to a certain, a certain program, such that, you know, even if they were compromised, you can't, you know, break into the, uh, I mean, assuming that you don't have a compromised for SGX, you can't break into the machine and cause it to do stuff that it's not supposed to be doing. And, you know, ostensibly, if that works and that setup is, is uh, running correctly, which I think is a lot easier to do than a, you know, layer two or optimistic roll-up or some, you know, even the near bridge, which, which is uses sort of an optimistic design, the rainbow bridge, um, is more complex and it's got more surface area to it. So I think in the short term, my expectation is that bridges are going to try to find relatively simple ways, but lowering kind of the human error component to make sure that bridging remains secure. In the long run, we do have to find decentralized solutions to this stuff that doesn't rely on, hey, these like seven people I know I can trust. You know, if, if, if you know which of the seven people there are out there to try to go attack, you'll, you'll find them and you'll be able to attack them the way that, you know, you would think Sky Mavis, it's like, okay, maybe one of some of the other, other multi-stakeholders might be attacked, but Sky Mavis, like they have the most incentive in the world to keep this thing secure. And it was them who got popped. Yeah, in terms of practical impacts of this, I mean, I forget who originally posited this. I think it might have been Vitalik, but it's a pretty logical concept, which is wrapped assets that are bridged from another chain should be worth less than native assets. So Ether on Avalanche, no matter how good the bridge is, should be worth less than Ether on Ethereum, you know? No, that, that doesn't make any sense. Isn't that, wouldn't that imply that like Tether should be worth less than a dollar? That necessarily, but... The concept being that if you have an asset on another blockchain, it actually has the, you know, bridge risk that the native asset just doesn't, right? Fundamentally. And if you always treat them as being worth the same at some point, that's fine. But at some point, you know, you have these, it goes to zero type events, right? You know, I, I think like this, you know, theory of like risk arbitrage doesn't exist yet. And users always treat them as exactly the same asset on different chains. But I think over time, some extremely sophisticated, you know, market behavior will emerge to value them differently as it should, because they are and should be worth something different than, you know, the bridge versus unbridged version. I understand the shape of your argument, obviously, um, but the reality, I mean, the reality is more complex because one, of course, bridging stuff has a pretty tight arbitrage loop. So it's very easy to go and, you know, arb something that is a bridged asset, assuming that the bridges are pretty liquid and pretty fast. Second, if your argument were true, it should apply to Tether. It should apply to USDC. It should apply to anything that like, can't trade above the peg, but can certainly trade below the peg, as Tether has historically. But, and same with DAI, right? Like DAI is, well, DAI is also trade above the peg, but you know, you, Tether should never trade sure. above the peg, presumably. A absolutely. It should potentially trade based on the bridge risk, being able to bridge back to the asset, right? If you are completely, have no issues bridging back to a US dollar, then they should trade the same. If, you know, you have the risk that you're not able to bridge back, it's not the same. Which means that like in good times and you know, most at equilibrium, assuming the bridge is like fairly stable most of the time, although a bridged asset always has more risk, I think most likely it'll trade at par. Somebody's not being compensated for risk then, right? So then the question is who's not being properly compensated? Yes, although 
another way to look at it is that there may be a premium to like, look, if, if you're on Avalanche, it's like, look, I really want Ether here. I'm willing actually to pay a premium that may, be, that may offset the risk premium that the, the bridger is, is taking. True. So it's like, you know, importing, you know, it, dollars in other countries sometimes trade for more than they trade in the U.S., even though it's, it's complicated to import them. Yeah, but those dollars oftentimes don't go to zero. I think one thing we actually have to think about uh, in these bridges is that, first of all, we kind of have this notion of native bridges versus non-native bridges of like bridges that are like promissory notes on native tokens on another asset and bridges that are promissory notes on a local asset. So like if I have ETH and I went through wormhole, right, I get a promissory note of wormhole ETH, but wormhole ETH is actually a promise on another chain. Right. It's a promise on the source chain versus like, you know, something like wormhole synapse. They synapse a little bit more complicated, but like, let's say wormhole or sorry, layer zero. Layer zero is really a promissory note on your local chain. Right. And in some sense, the problem is most users do not know anything about distributed systems. They're not thinking about like source destination, like whether I have a future or a promise. So, the number one thing I want to tell every listener who doesn't know anything about computer science, but who is like, oh, like I have like $10 million bridge across 20 assets on 10 different chains. Read the Wikipedia page for futures and promises in distributed systems. Because at the end of the day, the choice of bridge is a choice of a future promise system in distributed systems. And you will not get, if you don't understand what that thing is, you and how the how like the notion of I'm holding something that's promising me something in the future versus something that's promising me something now versus something that's promising me something at the intermediate time. If you don't understand that dynamic, you don't really understand the asset that you own, right? You 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 have a mental model that might be it is the thing that I think it is right now, but it might not be, right? It might be only that thing at some future time or at some event happening. And the number one thing I think I've, lear I've learned after watching all these bridge things is that people have not internalized a lot of like basic terminology from distributed systems and mapped up to financial assets. Of the idea that, hey, this thing that I think is one-to-one -one is actually a future plus a swap plus an option. And it may actually go to zero because like the future might collapse at the same time as the option, at the same time as the swap. And that's a very important thing to remember. That that. I guess maybe it, it, if I were, I, I just wanted to summarize kind of the conversation I heard in kind of more concise terminology of like, I highly recommend reading what the concept of future and the promises in distributed systems. I think that's a very cogent point, but I think probably the people who are bridging are more enticed with getting, you know, 1500 APY on, you know, burrito finance versus, you know, c considering the, uh, the relationship that they have with their, with their bridges. So maybe a point to, uh, yeah, Hasib's point on, uh, well, well, the reason I say this is like some, you know, the, the website L2 Beats, which shows you like a list of all the L2s and it gives you like the security assumptions and it lets you like have a little comparison matrix of this like comparison matrix for the bridges and like the notion of like what assets are synthetic and not. And also more importantly for the end user, which assets are like redeemable now? Which assets are redeemable only if I cross the bridge? Which assets, which assets give me some other kind of guarantee? And I think the layer two community, obviously, maybe 
to some extent, overextending on this. They have focused on education in this frame. And everyone in the bridge side has just been like, YOLO, it's the same thing. Like, we don't give a shit. We're just going to pretend, we're going to tell you you borrowed ETH on Solana. And, you know, it's ETH. So your yield is yield. But I actually think there's a huge gap in the community of making L2 beats for synthetics on bridges. And that, like, I hope so someone does bridge that. Beat. Yeah. Bridge beat. Bridge I don't beat. know what the name is, but yeah. Like, the same we'll website. Find it. We'll find it. You build it, we'll find it. I, I think I, I completely agree with that. And I think the bridges right now, and you see this, you know, the, the big war right now in bridges is between um, Layer Zero and Axelar. And I think they're, they're both in the position where they're trying to tell the story. And I guess there's also Synapse and Multichain, obviously. They're trying to tell the story that bridging is going to be super easy. It's just going to be like you click a button and you, you know, it's like, it's like on the internet, you don't care what domain you're sending your next request to. And in the same way, you know, in, in bridging and blockchains, you will just click a button and you, you don't have to care about the details of how your transaction is getting routed and where the funds are going and whatever. And, um, you know, to your point, Tarun, it's not like the internet because assets have to be sitting somewhere at rest. And when assets are sitting somewhere custodied on some particular chain, that means that now you have some kind of claim on an asset that exists somewhere else. And that claim, the way in which that claim is redeemed depends on the details of what exactly was wrapped when and, and, and how exactly it gets redeemed and if there has to be a swap in order to actually get the thing on the other side. And so it's, it's complicated and you got to know the details and it's going to be a while until we actually are able to, until people, uh, until it becomes more transparent to them what the bridging experience is going to look like when we do have robust cross-chain solutions. Today, I think what we most have is beta software. And, and not to, to, to kind of shield a like abstract concept that perhaps all parties in this Zoom are invested in kind of looking forward to. But these cross, the notion of a cross-chain block explorer is quite different than the notion of a local chain block explorer. And actually conveying to the end user what a cross-chain transaction looks like will look different than Etherscan. And I think that's something that we have to actually internalize, that the UX for the end user will not be Etherscan. It will be like a very different looking thing for how we search through blockchains and how we organize blockchains. And that will kind of... Whatever UX is Etherscan 2.0 is like the difference between like Gopher and Netscape. Okay, well, it turns out that Ronin was not the only hack, uh, or not the only very significant hack that took place during the last two weeks. Uh, we just recently saw another massive hack. Well, actually, a, a couple of them. Uh, so one, we saw a, uh, a massive hack in a protocol called Inverse Finance. Uh, they were hacked for $156 million through an Oracle manipulation attack. Tom, you were, you were explaining this one to me earlier. Do you want to give the TLDR on how this happened? Yeah, just to be clear, it's actually 15.6 million. I think a decimal got, got moved there. Oh, whoops, sorry, 15.6 million. Yes, not as bad. What's the decimal point between friends? You know, I say that all the time. There's no decimals on the blockchain, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything is fixed point, so who cares? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Don't, please do not ever assign me that. I understand what the shift operator is. So, Inverse is it's a lending protocol um, on Ethereum, and obviously, I don't have to tell, we have the, the lending, you know, daddy in, in this call, you know, a, a key part of uh, a lending protocol is knowing how to how to mark assets, right? So you have to know how much is this worth. You know, am I am I properly collateralized? What is the value of my debt? What is the value of my collateral? A lot of teams will use an off chain Oracle system, run their own, like with Maker, 
Um, but a lot of teams will use a TWAP. So they'll, they'll look at an AMM and take a TWAP over the AMM and use that as an Oracle, which allows you to support a lot of different assets. In theory, it's more robust, et cetera, et cetera. Inverse was using a TWAP on SushiSwap for a diff- couple of different tokens. The problem is that they were only doing a TWAP on one block. So basically, they were looking at the, the previous block that was being traded and using that to mark the value of the assets in the next block. So uh, Bert Miller from Flashbots actually had a really good rundown of this on, on Twitter. And you basically call it one of the most sophisticated or MEV-aware attacks that he's seen recently, where basically the attacker used a private mempool to insert its bundle to get its, its bundle mind to actually perform the attack. So arbitrage bots couldn't, you know, therefore capture um, its Oracle manipulation in the same block. So basically they push up the price of a bunch of these different assets in one block and they were able to borrow a bunch against it. So way more than they would normally be able to. Again, normally this is not a big deal because on an AMM, you can then just, you know, trade down and arbitrage against um, the value of an of a overpriced asset. But because they got this transaction privately mined, um, no one was able to see it. And also because it's a, you know, one block TWAP, basically there was no opportunity for the, for that lending market to recorrect its price. So a very, very clever attack. And like you said, one of the most MEV aware attacks that he'd seen recently. Lending daddy, what's your take? Nobody should use a price feed based on one block of prices. One block or zero blocks. Zero blocks or one block are both extremely bad, right? There used to be a whole lot of attacks because people are using the current price, not even one block old TWAP. They were using what's the current price. And that was like the first wave of like, you know, price feed based disruptions. You know, a TWAP of one block is no better, right? Like a TWAP of one minute might not be better, right? Or even like, you know, five minutes, right? So like, it's extremely complex. This is one of the reasons why if you are borrowing against assets, the protocol has to assume that prices might be a little bit stale or a little bit out of date. Um, Because this is a huge, huge, huge opportunity for risk. So dumb choices, bad parameters. Then there was another cybersecurity uh, story that came out yesterday, which is that, so Open Zeppelin, which was running an audit on behalf of Coinbase for Convex Finance, found that there was a way for the Convex, fi- uh, uh, I guess, admin uh, and or multi-stakeholders to basically rug the entire protocol uh, and essentially drain all the funds in the protocol using some you know, a fairly complex a chain of, of operations within the protocol that is not supposed to be the case. Even if you have the admin keys, you're not supposed to be able to take money out of the protocol. But uh, admin keys were capable of performing this attack. Now, the, it was an interesting story, actually, because the question is, okay, if you know that there's a way that billions of dollars, and 15 billion in this case, if you know there's a way that billions of dollars of capital can be extracted from a protocol, but it can't be done by anybody, it can only be done by the admin, how do you do responsible disclosure? for a situation like that. And uh, the, the, the answer that Open Zeppelin ended up coming to was that they approached the team and they told them, hey guys, we found a very severe vulnerability that allows the admins to drain all the capital in the protocol, but we can't tell you because look, we love you guys and like I believe that you're in it for the right reasons, but like, look, this is $15 billion, like we can't mess around here. So in order for us to disclose this vulnerability to you, you have to add more people to the multisig so that when we disclose it, we are confident that you can't get a, a plurality of the multisig to sign off on any type of attack. Uh, and so Convex Finance did that. They added more people to the multisig. And then 
opens up when disclosed, and then they fix the bug. So it's very, very interesting, almost like James Bond-esque series of maneuvers that had to be done here to make sure that the, everything could be rescued without the bomb going off. Um, so I, I thought this was an interesting one, but it's just a, another continuation in the the through line of this week, which has been that smart contracts are hard and people keep messing them up. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Convex has not migrated to a fully on-chain governance system. Um, like I think in the early days of protocols, it's like pretty natural for the core team to retain a multi-sig over, you know, contract upgrades and then basically respect, you know, the votes of token holders. And so there's a sort of tacit agreement there. And obviously for a treasury, a lot of teams use a multi-sig, you know, but there's, there's sort of less of an, of an you know, risk with that. But this seems like they had upgrade abilities on a two or three multi-sig for a protocol with 15 billion TVL, which is, which is kind of insane. I think the story of Convex is also warranted here. Where it was like built around the Curve Finance contract, and they kind of like built this allocation tool that is actually a lot super complex. Like I, I think like I know there there's like this general movement of like, hey, we want the VE model everywhere. Unlike Tom, I'm not saying any value judgment on whether it's it's good or bad. I know Tom has very strong opinions on this, as we've seen on Twitter. Ignoring the value judgment on that, the code is actually extremely hard to reason about. Uh, you know, there's like a way of abstracting the VE model to something simple, but the way it's actually written is much more complicated than the curve code, which is extremely simple in a lot of ways, minus, of course, the sort of like how do you compute the invariant gradient to something. So I actually think there's like this weird thing of like convex is actually a little like it was made as a way to kind of like boost curve. And then I think a lot, of, I suspect based on the code commit history, a lot of the early developers do not work on it anymore. And, the, and they are, people are very afraid to transition because there's not like a good, very good developer ecosystem around it. And you can just go look at the code commit history and it's not, there's a lot of like inconsistencies there in a weird way that if I were them, I would be very afraid of transitioning to government. The alpha leak in this entire industry is read the GitHub, right? And the convex GitHub tells a very interesting story. What's the uh, 90 second TLDR interesting story to leak all the alpha? I, I think interesting story is, is very clear that the curve development team and the convex development team were very closely tied for a long enough time period. Obviously, convex built everything around curve. But there was a point at which they clearly diverged and it wasn't clear who the sides of the divergent sides were. And then what, the side that was maintaining convex sort of seems to have disappeared. And there have been some community PRs, but there hasn't been a lot of like the main developer core uh, contributing as much. There have definitely been some patches, but in a way that I think transitioning to governance would be hard if they weren't more involved. That's, that's interesting. I haven't spent enough time thinking about that, so I'm glad you brought that up, Tarun, is the, the idea that transitioning over into governance, into you know, fully on-chain governance, requires some confidence and stability in the underlying code, right? It's not just a matter of, okay, we were like, we're not iterating as much, or we're not as startup-y anymore, and like, we kind of got product market fit, and now it's time to hand things over to on-chain governance. It is also confidence that like, we're not very likely to come across a bug that needs to get fixed overnight. We've got some good understanding about how to change the code and actually review code updates that happen via governance. And like, we're, we're pretty confident that we're not going to accidentally pass through governance 
something that's just going to explode the entire protocol. And if you don't have that, then it's kind of hard. It's almost like, you know, transitioning a project or like, you know, when, when Facebook develops some open source thing and then they're like, great, now let's like put it into some, uh, you know, let's, let's create some foundation around it or whatever and just spin it out into that thing and that thing can run it from now on um, or hand it over to, you know, the, the, uh, uh, one, of these, one of these kind of open source cemeteries where <laughs> projects stop getting innovated on. That's kind of the, I guess it's sort of equivalent for protocols is that you can only really fully move something out of the hands of the core team when you're confident enough that it can live on without the loving hands and the, and the you know, the, 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 the upbringing that you need in the early days to have a secure enough code base. Uh, and if you never get there, you never actually get to that point where people are confident in how to change it and how to steward it, then it might never cross that chasm. There's sort of a latency thing, right? Of like, when you go to full governance, governance is not instant the way your multisig is, right? There's some latency of describing the problem and convincing the community, doing the vote. And the question is, do you think the high severity bugs in your code base can be corrected at that latency? They're not like something that needs to be corrected faster than that. And, and if you don't have the confidence for that, it can be extremely difficult I think community-wise, to, to to do such a thing, I, I think there are ways that had training wheels. Right there, are, there are projects that have like an admin emergency stop, which makes sense. Like, hey, there's a vulnerability, no more deposits, no withdrawals. Like, we're gonna swap out the contract through governance versus like, you know, just winging it and and throwing it in the wild. But you know, say you know, one man's bug is another man's bounty, and so you know, true that like, yes, something like that might be difficult to go through governance. But there's a there's like a reason why you want something that like like that to get through governance because the flip side is that you know you wield an incredible amount of power to you know be able to upgrade uh, an implementation contract like that. Yeah, two comparisons, right? The convex contract is like a very fresh contract written by this initial set of developers, but they don't rest on any other code base in some way, and so it's like a very new code base, and then they're not super active, and it's not clear that like it they've built enough resilience around it. On the other hand, Terra's code base, if you look at the commits to Terra, there are an extremely small number of developers who have committed to Tendermint, uh, sorry, to Terra's fork of Tendermint. But yet, they, because the Cosmos ecosystem has an insanely large number of developers that they're constantly upstreaming updates from, you can actually believe that their ecosystem is sort of implied a developer ecosystem is actually bigger than what their code base says. Convex is much more weird. It's really standing on its own. And most people who copy it are people who are, you know, for instance, Tribeca DAO has basically re-implemented Convex and Solana. Well, that's not a very good comparison, right? Like, it's not like the Tribeca DAO developers, let's say there's like a big emergency and Convex could actually go fix it because they're not writing this weird combination of Viper and Solidity. And so there, there's kind of this kind of very boring people met, people involved thing that I think one has to consider when fully decentralizing in a lot of ways. It, it's like really important to have like developer community that understands intimately what's happening. I, that's just my opinion. I, I again, other people may think it's safer otherwise, but fair, 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 fair points all around. And you know, if if anything, this week is a good reminder of why this stuff matters. And um, you know, we've seen a number of big failures and actually not last of which there's a, there's another story that we wanted to cover this week of this, this stable coin that we don't talk about very much called the USDN. 
So you people have probably seen that there's a, a smart contract platform called Waves that's been pumping a lot over the last few weeks, specifically after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, well, it, it pumped a lot and then it pumped not so much. And so Waves is a smart contract blockchain. It's been around forever. I've, I've only ever known it as like the Russia smart contract chain. I, I haven't known a whole lot about Waves besides that. But so Waves has a project on it called Neutrino, which is a stable coin. Somewhat similar to Terra, but it's got different mechanics. I don't actually, I don't actually understand all the details about how Neutrino works, but basically, it's supposed to trade for a dollar because it's a stable coin. So a bunch of drama erupted uh, over this last week uh, of the the founder of Waves accusing Alameda, uh, whom they you know they paid um, they paid FTX. Alameda is the, the market making arm associated with FTX. The founder of Waves accused Alameda of despite the fact that FTX took like a you know million and a half integration fee to get uh, Waves and their ecosystem integrated into FTX, Alameda went and supposedly shorted an enormous amount of USDN to try to break the peg or something, something along those lines or collect a huge funding rate. I don't know. There's a big argument on Twitter about why exactly they were doing this. But supposedly, the, the founder claims that because of that, Neutrino is now trading below the peg. And there's a, there's a bunch of fingers getting pointed in every direction. It's kind of like the Spider-Man meme. And Neutrino is now, as of, as of right now, they're trading at something like 88 cents. So it is trading very comfortably below the peg and does not seem to be moving very much from there. So maybe it's stable at 88 cents. I'm not sure. I, so we, we were talking before we began recording. We were like, I bet Tarun knows how this thing works. So Tarun, do you know how this thing works? And can you explain this to us? I don't, but there is someone at my work who runs a liquidator and who is explaining a very rough estimate of it. And I can give you the analogy, which is it's Titan plus Terra. So it does, it has sort of like a very lossy stable coin, like, you know, ESC adjusting the inflation curve mechanism, but then it has sort of like a, it gets more tight under big price drops. But the problem is that the oracle to the price drops is actually not that great because it, it mainly includes the on-chain liquidity and their weights are not kind of super, super good for that, which is apparently a great thing for people running liquidators. That's, that's the only thing I know. So that is basically all I know. So I apologize. I, I really tried to read their docs once and I really felt like I was like getting like a lecture on like, something I didn't understand. And, and like, I somehow was like, this has got to be a scam. And I, I, this was like a year and a half ago. And so then I never looked into it again. That is generally the worst sign for a white paper when you're reading it and you feel like you're being lectured to. And you, you feel like it's like, wait, why, where, where are all these terms coming from? Like, I've never heard, like, why are you making up a new word for this? That is, that is kind of the worst feeling. Although you must be very used to that, giving you read math papers all the time. And I feel like that's like how every math paper. But like, I feel like the, the problem with like crypto, these stable coin papers in particular is like everyone who's doing it, you kind of, okay, here's my theory. Anyone who makes a new stable coin, especially non-collateralized stable coins, is a certain type of like Theodore Kaczynski. They're kind of like a little bit crazy in a certain way where they're like, I am going to reinvent every fucking thing in finance and it's going to be exactly this way and it's going and i'm going to make everything safe and they have this kind of like crazed look in their face and it's not like their words are any different <laughs> their words are also equally as crazy they kind of have this like kind of psychopath 
tendency because it's like to believe you're going to do this also without collateral. Like collateralized systems, I'm ignoring, right? Where sure. Collateralized systems much more naturally, believable. Naturally, naturally. Purely algo stable coins. The people who found these things oftentimes, number one thing I've learned, they do not look at history. They do not say like, oh, what are the attempts that have happened before me? They're just like, no, 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 no. I'm going to invent the greatest thing because I'm God's gift to earth and I'm this genius who knows what's how. And they never look at history. And this neutrino thing was like exactly to the T this thing of like, oh, yeah, well, like the central bank works this way. Insert things that partially are true, partially not true. But, you know, we're being suppressed by the like political forces X. And so here's how we get around them by this kind of very simple like PID controller. That's usually the pitch. And Neutrino was that, except more political. And every major stablecoin, especially to your point, the senior shares type models, they pretty much always have a section in there about, okay, what, what's going to happen after the dollar collapses and how are we going to become like this? You always need a section for what happens after the dollar collapses because obviously, obviously that's, in your, that, that's the most important thing I need to know of when I'm investing. all the crypto papers, very few are as political as the Bitcoin white paper and algorithmic stablecoins. Those are the two that like, for no reason will invoke political like, fortitude. That's like, it's a like proof of political might. That's like what they want to do to you when you're reading this. <laughs> I, I actually, I think the Bitcoin paper is actually surprisingly sober. Like it's actually not very political. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm including all the forum posts in my, my interpretation. It, here's a shameless plug for the Bitcoin white paper. If you haven't read it in the last like 24 months, go back and read it. It's delightful because it takes extremely big things that like people spend like years debating, like proof of work. And it's like, Oh no, it uses proof of work and like with like an increasing difficulty. And it's like two sentences. Like the white paper is so succinct in terms of like simplifying extremely big things into like a two sentence, like, oh no, it uses proof of work and the difficulty increases, like as a function of, you know, the last difficulty. And you're like, that's the entire explanation of proof of work in the Bitcoin white paper. It's crazy. It's so simple and it's not political. I agree, but I, I guess generally, like, you read a, a layer one paper, like the smart contract language paper, it's like, here is the future of computation, right? And then, like, you read a paper about, like, a DeFi protocol, it's like, here's why Goldman Sachs sucks at doing this thing. But then you read the Algo Stablecoin papers, and it's like, wow, you have to have a certain type of crazy to write that. There's just no way around it. They, like, they, it's like, it's built into them. Who else would write that? I think it's true. I think it's true. I think it started with Basis, and I think Basis kind of, like, I, I don't know if anybody here has read the Basis white paper. Basis was basically, uh, it was not the inventor of senior shares. Senior shares was invented, like, I think in 2014 or something by, I think it was Robert Sams. BitShares, which failed. Don't forget BitShares, RIP. Well, BitShares was not senior shares. It was, but they added senior shares late at the end to try to capture the, like, while they were crashing, it didn't work. Oh, right? I didn't know that. It's okay. The founders all founded EOS, so they're fine. They're fine. They're doing, they're doing well. They're all doing well. But um, I think it started with, with Basis. Basis kind of taught people, like, look, if you want to do an algo stablecoin, you got to just be maximally crazy like there you cannot pull any stuff like you have i'm going to completely reinvent money the dollar is going to disappear because of how awesome my stablecoin is 
and like it, eventually this was eat the world and everyone will use this. And I remember, I remember the uh, the the back tests. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw. Did you guys invest in basis back in the day? I didn't, but I remember all of my friends did. Okay, yeah, it was like it was. I I did not, in spite of being friends with Natter for ten years. Interesting. <laughs> <So laughs> That's cold. No, no, no. I love Natter. The the sales pitch was crazy. Like I had, I was like, "Am I? What world am I in?" Like I had to just be like, <laughs> "I need more drugs if I'm going to believe this pitch." Yeah, to be clear, I I love Natter. I thought Basis had a ton of problems, and we saw in practice that it obviously did because everything that tried to implement Basis failed and broke pretty pretty quickly. But but, but I love Natter. But like the, I remember when I read the back test. So like. This was this was early days of crypto, and so anything that you wrote that was technical, people just immediately believed. And so he wrote this. They they did these simulations that basically showed that basis. Uh, like the question was always like, okay, the senior shares model is it not just going to break in times of high volatility? And they were like, all right, we're going to do these simulations that proves during like the Mexican peso crisis, you know, the ruble crisis. Uh, like when, you know, like in the civil war, uh, we're going to take all this economic data and we're going to run simulations that proves that basis works even during like the worst possible periods in history. And I'm like, I don't believe you. I do not believe you. I don't, I, I believe you did something that shows a program that says something. I don't believe you that basis would work in any of those circumstances. Yeah. The real world, when you have a bunch of DGENs with their money in something, it won't perform like you think. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on, on a pet theory around these, these seniorage models around. I mean, obviously the issue is always like at some point, the price of the share component starts going down. There's like a crisis of confidence around the system. And that inevitably sort of leads to this you know, collapse. But if you look at the ones that have been you know, moderately successful so far, it's Terra and it's uh, Waves, Neutrino. And I think that's in part because the shares component is this like, you know, yield generating share in a proof of stake blockchain. And so it's like, there's, there's something going on here. Where it's like, well, you know, this can't be worth nothing because I'm getting 15% a year staking my uh, Luna or staking my uh, Neutrino. And so it's like these, you know, some sort of like, you know, mental shift and like, oh, there's some fundamental value here versus like, this is just some coin that they minted, you know, fuck this, like this whole thing's going to zero, which is, you know, tends to be sort of the end state for all these uh, seniorage models. Well, it's also that there's some exogenous demand, right? So for, for Terra, you know, Terra has a senior shares type model, but there, people want Terra for other reasons beyond just the stable. I mean, you know, presumably people want Terra for reasons other than the stable coin, which is why, you know, it, it it has at least some nominal diversification of the value of the share token. You mean Anchor? Yes. So I, I understand. Yeah, obviously a lot of it is Anchor. A lot of the UST demand is is and lunar demand is Anchor. But um, in principle, at least, it's at least nominally better. And I think that was the key to actually being a layer one stablecoin that like Celo miss, that basis miss. A lot of the people who were kind of trying to gear for that model hoped that the organic demand would be payments, right? Like the, the, the dream of stablecoins was always payments, but it was wrong. You can't really bootstrap stablecoins off payments. You have to bootstrap that off lending and like more complicated things because at the end of the day, the dumb users are not the first users. And like that, it's like impossible to bootstrap at that point, right? And, uh, you know, speaking of stablecoin, we're, we're going to see a Bitcoin stablecoin soon, according to the news today. Wait, which news is this? It's Lightning Labs. Oh, I did not see this. Uh, <laughs> someone want to explain this? I just woke up. It's morning here in Singapore. 
in, in our last five minutes, what, what's happening with the Bitcoin stablecoin? Well, Lightning Labs raised like $70 million for a, a sort of Bitcoin token standard and Bitcoin stablecoin. I thought it was just stablecoins on Bitcoin through Lightning. I don't, is it actually a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin? It's not, it's, not, it's not clearly Bitcoin-backed. I think the main thing is they have a sort of modification of this token standard that people had been like trying to build on top of Lightning. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm offending some pure Bitcoiners on when I call it a token standard, but there is an overlay network that you can transfer value of assets that are not directly pegged to Bitcoin. Sorry, hopefully that's the politically correct definition of a token in that corner of the universe. You know, they want to actually build a low variance asset for it. It's like the Winnie the Pooh meme. You know, it's like the, the low class of stable coin. You got the high class, the low variance asset. <laughs> I, I'm, just tell, I'm just parroting what I've read. I, 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 I want to offend no one. So I <laughs> well, you failed at offending no one for sure. Uh, yeah, it's hard. It, it's it's interesting how incredibly political stablecoins have become. They used to be a pretty boring and unobjectionable part of crypto. Now it turns out they're the most exciting part of crypto. Just real quick, last piece of news, uh, which is kind of crypto adjacent, but I'm going to count it as, as crypto. Elon Musk was just announced as having taken a massive stake in Twitter. He was secretly buying up uh, Twitter equity over the last uh, couple months. Uh, he now owns 9.2% of the overall share of Twitter. It makes him the single largest shareholder in Twitter. And he was just appointed today to the Twitter board of directors. So <laughs> Elon Musk is now uh, going to be influencing stuff happening at Twitter. How do we feel about this, everybody? One of the greatest SEC filings in history. It is like the shortest thing ever. It's like SEC, Elon Musk has joined the board of Twitter he agrees not to own 14.9%. The end. Amazing. Amazing. Edgar, Edgar has been blessed. <laughs> I was actually wondering about that. Why is it 14.9%? If I had to guess, in like the corporate Raider 80s or whatever, you know, they said, oh, owning 15% has all sort of different things. They said, well, it can't be 15. 14.9 is where like the limit is. That sounds that sounds exactly like you know probably the right answer. Yeah, the, <laughs> I feel like um, Elon is living the uh, the Web three dream. You know, it's the the largest users of the protocol are governing the protocol in a very you know clunky backwards way. But this is the way it should be. I think it's great. I actually think we're going to see a lot more crypto native features come to Twitter. That's my prediction. I mean, we already saw it with Jack getting kicked out. Like almost literally the next two days after he left. Well, let's see if uh, maybe SBF is going to buy, you know, <laughs> I don't know. What, what could he buy? Foursquare? <laughs> well, the, 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 the ESPN part of the world is weird because every, sp every sports person is making an NFT platform right now. That's true. So it, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the economics are <laughs> for that. Yeah, the, 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 the unfortunate reality is that actually SPF doesn't need to buy anything because everyone's already going all in on crypto. So things will, things will just kind of happen whether or not crypto people buy a stake in them. One last news item is the FTX investing in IEX thing. A, proof Flash Boys was wrong, which I'm personally, having worked in the industry, I feel vindicated a little bit. But uh, the second thing 
is that FTX buying IEX tells you a little bit of a signal that like stocks and crypto are going to converge to the same thing. Five years. Well, they, they bought a stake in IEX, right? Like they didn't, they didn't, they didn't buy IEX, did they? No, but they're basically, I, it, it seems like it's the type of thing where like they need ATS licenses and they want to do FTX US doing stock trading and they want stock and crypto trading, same place. You don't notice the difference. And IEX is like the weakest dog at the, you know, it's like the, it's like the half mute missing one leg dog has 2% market share on a good day. And not, not exactly the like sharpest tool at the shed on the equities markets and equities markets are razor thin margins. Right. So it's like, and they were already kind of struggling. So like it was, it was very pointed moves So to people in the HFT world. We were all just like, all my group chats woke up being like, Stocks and equities are the same in five years. Wow, that's a that's a bold vision. That's exciting. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that it may be. It's kind of like when Sequoia and Paradigm invested into uh, Sitsec. No, Sitsec in particular, Sitsec, not the rest of Citadel. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. The in, in, in Citadel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, no, just the HFT part. Pung is going to be CEO, not even Ken Griffin. That's crazy. Pung, who's this like uh, stats PhD guy? Professor, former professor, he was the one who was like going on CNN. I was like, "What the fuck?" Like, I can't believe that guy is going on CNN to represent Citadel. <laughs> like, it was a very, it's a weird world. Like, let's just say, like, the trading world is is getting blown up by crypto, and the IEX thing to me was more of a signal than than Citadel because it was like the big dog crypto exchanges want to compete with U.S. equities exchanges. Like, like I, and they could. Like, the fact that they could is crazy, right? Two years ago, you would never have thought that. One year ago, you would never have thought that. Well, speaking of crypto blowing up, uh, last, actually last thing, Tarun, uh, last time we announced the news of Gauntlet becoming a unicorn. And so now that you're actually here and are willing to grace us with your presence, we wanted to congratulate you on the amazing uh, progress that Gauntlet has made. Any, uh, would, you, would you like to give us a word in your acceptance speech of your unicorn status? You know, given the, uh, that award shows have not had a great couple weeks, as, as we all know, all I have to say is I hope I have better colored hair next time I'm on the show. Yeah, what's going on, man? Are you going? Are you going? Are you going clean now? Now that you've made it big? Uh, no, it's just that my I, I gotta redye my hair. I've been lazy, so I promise. I promise the sh- the viewers something better soon. Yeah, can we can we do like an on chain vote for this? I would actually. That's great. That's great. One of you can start a poll, and I will go do it. Okay. 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 I'm starting a poll right now. All right, for the for the for the at home for the at home listeners on the podcast side, Tarun's hair right now is jet black. Come join Tar- Robert Leshner is going to be launching the poll. Come and vote on what Tarun's hair is going to be next time he, he pops on the show. What are the choices? Oh, he's got a few highlights. He's fading. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'd say I'd say at least magenta needs to be on there. Magenta. What else? Green, obviously. Green, green's a classic. Uh-huh. Uh, what else? Two more. White? Yeah, just go bleach it, you know? All right, I'm putting that as an option, but I don't know. <laughs> it's non-binding. All right. It's, it's a one-on-one multi-sig. I mean, one more choice. Results one more choice. Not. Tarun, what do we have? I was going to just go green, because I always do green, but 
Blue? Yeah, let's do blue. Let's throw blue in there. Yeah, blue. I, it, it really depends. It's like I've gone to the same hairstylist for 12 years, and I only go to the same person. And whatever she says does kind of dominate. So, like, just understand that there's not a final poll. That people okay. So, okay. Well, let's end the show here, but I'm going to put up this poll imminently. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody. In a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll check back in and see how Tarun's hair is doing. See you, everyone. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone.